Good morning. Today's scripture is from Ephesians 5, 1 to 14, New Living Translation. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immortality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dana. Good morning, everyone. Wow, awesome to see you here this morning, whole house, and uh, I sometimes think if these walls could talk, eh? We've had, uh, we've had tremendous usage of this building over the last five, six weeks. Uh, last evening, filled to capacity, Lauren Cunningham from YWAM was here with Resurgence. Uh, the weeks prior to that, there have been trade fairs in here, and... Uh, uh, thousands and thousands of people have come through this building and so it was our dream years ago that the building would be used 24-7 and and I think it really is uh, being accomplished so uh, we're grateful for that. What a great morning. Uh, if you're first time here at TCC we certainly want to welcome you and uh, trust you feel right at home uh, with us. We're in the book of Ephesians. We've been there for quite a while. Uh, perhaps you've heard the story of a captain who was uh, guiding a massive battleship and he spotted a faint light on a very foggy evening. Immediately he ordered his signalman to send the message, alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly the captain received a response, alter your course 10 degrees north. Well the indignant captain shot back a message with great fervency. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm the captain of this vessel. Almost instantly, another message was received, calm to the point. He said, I am C. Third Class Jones. Alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain fumed. Who does he think he is, a low-ranking seaman giving orders to a ship captain? Young man, I repeat, alter your course 10 degrees south. This is a battleship. Then came the terse reply as the light pierced the darkness. Captain, I repeat, alter your course 10 degrees north. This is a lighthouse. 
Now, I don't know if that's a factual story or not. I rather doubt it. But there are some important reminders from the story. First and foremost, that lighthouses are there for a purpose. And uh, in fact, this lighthouse was there to actually hap, hap, uh, help this captain, even though he resisted it because it was infringing on his authority and on his sense of self-importance. It was hard to think that the message what he was getting was the message that he needed to obey. God's word is a lighthouse. Sometimes we are resistant to it because it warns us in areas where we think we maybe don't need to be cautioned or given guidance. And God puts some beacon lights in our life to protect us and to bless us in our journey with him. And I hope that becomes clear this morning as we look at his word. Again, we're in chapter 5 of our study of Ephesians, a series called Deeper. And we've moved from what we believe, our, our beliefs, our doctrine in the first three chapters, to actually living this out in the 24 hours that we're gifted with each and every day. Uh, we're putting, kind of putting the rubber to the road. How does our belief system go into practice from day to day? And how do we live out the first three chapters of Ephesians. And so Paul is teaching us that belief and practice must go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Uh, I think there's a song that goes like that, isn't there? You can't have one without the other. I'm not sure how that all goes. But what we believe about God tells us a great deal about what we believe about living out our lives regardless of who we are. Some say, well, really, I don't think it matters what you believe because that's personal. It's my life. I believe what I want to believe. But on the other hand, as you no doubt would agree, what we believe affects ourselves and affects other people. The most extreme example of that is probably ISIS. What they believe dreadfully impacts how they live and how we live, too. Some say it really doesn't matter about behavior. It's not all that important. But I think we all know that we live in a world where we're kind of uncertain about the next person's behavior. And we ask the question, am I safe with them? Are they out of control? Sometimes, as you know, humans get too close to wild animals and we say, you know, keep your distance. You never know. Even if you believe they would never harm you, they are wild animals. And you have to be cautious. So chapter 5 introduces us to the practical living out of our beliefs, our value system. And the first cha uh, point is the mimic challenge. Imitate God. This is the New Living Translation. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. I remember uh, visiting some dear friends in Berlin, and they were showing me their beautiful city, and we were walking down one of the main streets of Berlin when we came across a promenade where a street show was going on, and that was in the middle of this large sidewalk area, and a few people were performing. 
One of the guys was a mimic. I don't know if you've ever watched this. He was a mimic, and he was dressed up like a clown. He was very nimble, he was very quick, and he would come up behind people when they were unaware, and he would mimic what they were doing. So if they had their hands like this, then he was behind them, and he'd have his hands like this. And if they'd move like this, then he'd move behind them like this. And he would following, follow them around. And for a while, they were unaware that he was mimicking them. And then the whole crowd is just chuckling and chuckling, and finally they're getting that, what is going on? And they look behind, and then suddenly he's darted off, and he's doing it with somebody else. And... Uh, Embarrassed sometimes, they would kind of say, Oh, you! Or in German, Ach du! <laughs> Verse 1 starts with a therefore. So we could kind of take note of that. It's a summation of what Paul has been saying in chapter 4 about behavior. And the word for imitate here is mimic, New Living Translation. Imitate God. Or literally, mimic God. When we mimic someone, we're kind of like that guy in Berlin. We try to copy them, whatever they're doing, and that's what we do. How do we do that with God? How do you mimic God? Well, it's kind of a relief that Paul adds, because you're his dear children. And then you know what he says, following the example of Jesus Christ, that he's our template to follow. Imitate Jesus. Watch how he lived his life. Because that's going to be easier to follow. Watch how we lived his life and try to mimic it. We're to build into our lives those things that resemble who Jesus is. He's good, so we should be good. He's kind, so we should be kind. He's just and fair, so we ought to be the same. He's full of grace. We ought to demonstrate grace toward one another. And then most of all, how can we characterize the life of Jesus? We have to mention here the self-sacrificing love for us. That's agape love, verse 2. A love that sacrifices. Paul is saying, imitate this, this self-sacrificing love in the way you live. And then look at this next phrase, and a fragrant life. Jesus was a pleasing aroma to God. Wouldn't it be wonderful uh, if that was a, a description of every follower of Christ just a beautiful, beautiful aroma wherever they went. Don't you love to walk into a room that has a beautiful aroma? We were in the kitchen of uh, some friends recently, and they had one of these little humidifier thingies, and it has uh, scented lavender coming out like steam. Beautiful aroma in the, in the room. It kind of makes you want to stay in the kitchen. It, was, it smells so good. Wouldn't it be awesome if when you and I come into a room, there was just a, just a sense of God? There was just a sense of peace. There was just a sense of his beauty, uh, a beautiful aroma of love that was evident to God and evident to people around us. That would be mimicking God, right? That would be mimicking Jesus. Oh, but why is that such a daunting challenge? Why is that such a daunting challenge to mimic Jesus Christ? Well, the first problem is that I still bring into my Christian journey this old nature. We have a nature that will stay with us, an old nature, I think, until we die. Until we die. Hopefully, 
we will get stronger and stronger in our warfare against the old nature. But make no mistake, it's always there. I mean, if you have a broken arm, it will heal and it will get better. And you may hardly know one day that it was ever broken. It regained full strength. But our old nature never gets any better. It never will be what it should be until the Lord takes us to be with him. So always there is a battle in every heart, in every life, up and down, up and down. You see it in your life. You experience it, this yo-yo thing that goes on. And you, you say, you know, which nature is going to win, God's nature or the old nature? And it depends, of course, on which one we feed the most. Some say that we will reach perfection in this life. I don't think so. My experience is that we will always contend with the old nature. Therefore, we will always need to be on guard. The second problem is our habits. We have habits that linger from our time as an unbeliever. Now that we're believers, followers of Christ, just like it's in Paul's day, uh, we are trying to bring under control by the strength and power of the Holy Spirit things that we talked about last week, remember? Lying, anger that's out of control, unwholesome talk, uh, stealing. And we now get some add-ons in the list in chapter 5. Doesn't Paul get right down to the nitty-gritty? He just gets right in there where all of us live. Because they're the issues of every generation. They're not just the issues of our generation. They are the issues of every one of us. They are the issues of every generation of people who have ever lived. Have you ever heard of the cookie jar syndrome? Little boy's uh, mother had just baked a fresh batch of cookies, placed them in the cookie jar, giving instructions that no one was to touch them until after dinner. Everybody got that? Not until after dinner. But it was not long until she heard the lid of the jar move and she called out, My son, what are you doing? To which a meek voice called back, My hand is in the cookie jar resisting temptation. Fact is, no one can resist temptation with his or her hand in the cookie jar. And there are open cookie jars all around us. There are open cookie jars all around us. The biggest jars are now probably the computer slash smartphone and still the television. Still the television. The biggest jars are probably the computer, smartphone, and the television. Both of these items are in abundance in all of our homes. One television, two televisions, three televisions, maybe four in a home. Computers, iPhones, smartphones. I mean, who doesn't have one? And both of these little tools, which can be tremendously helpful on one hand, are also, on the other hand, open cookie jars for many in our nation. You know I'm not talking against televisions. You know I'm not talking against computers and smartphones. I mean, how could we survive without them? So that's not the point. But they just happen to fit into the cookie jar syndrome. 
more than any other areas. And the challenge uh, of every one of us is to secure the lid on the cookie jar. And the challenge of every family is to secure the lid on the cookie jar. Every family has to think that through because the message that you're trying to give in your home to your kids can be quite a different message than your kids have available to them through the TV and the smartphone and the computer. It's just, there are two different messages in our homes. And it's a huge challenge, I understand that. It's a huge challenge. And parents need the greatest of wisdom and discernment. The, the cookie jars are so prevalent in our homes that we almost, like it just flows and integrates into life, that we almost forget what they do to us. How they enter into our mind and our heart so subtly, so constantly, so pervasively, so naturally. And they set a tone for the way that we view life. I mean, that TV and that computer, that smartphone, has the power to shape our world view. And it does. Because it just becomes so normal, just so natural, that reaching for a cookie is simply doing what we see. That's all. It has become embedded into our minds. And then when people taste the cookie, eventually the sweetness of the cookie, but in time it changes to bitterness, and in time it changes to decay, and in time the soul begins to shrivel because of it. And we see that that TV, that slash computer, was not as wise as we thought it was. But it takes tremendous wisdom and discernment in our day. This is the area that Paul speaks to in the next section, verses 3 to 7. So protection from the cookie jar syndrome. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Now, Paul mentions six areas that he wants to speak into. Paul is trying to be a lighthouse. He's trying to be a lighthouse to warn these new friends in Christ to be really careful about some stuff that he sees them struggling with. Well, this is a whole new paradigm shift for these people who have come to place their faith in Christ. I'd just like you to try to get back into the context of it. Just imagine that you were planting the church back in the day. Just imagine that you felt the responsibility for all of these people coming to faith in Christ. And, and your name was Paul. And what would you do if you were Paul? You're miles away. You're in a prison, yet you're con so concerned about this young church. You want nothing more in your life than to see them walk with God. And you want to see them flourish and grow, but, but you can see the landmines that they'll have to carefully move around or they're going to struggle and some will fall away. One of the landmines is sexual immorality. Sounds like the Apostle Paul's living in our generation. But no... Every generation, every generation, we're not unique at all. Uh, let there be no sexual 
immorality among you, Paul says. Now, the word immorality is the word perdea, which you can see is a root word for the term that we know so well, pornography. Actually, it's a very broad term. It includes all kinds of sexual sin outside of marriage, including fornication, adultery, and prostitution. Remember again, these verses were pointed to Christians who had come to Christ, and they were, they were living in this notoriously uh, sinful port, seaport, of Ephesus. And remember what was happening in Ephesus. This was where the temple of Diana, or Artemis, was located. The dominant religion of the day and the worship of the multi-breasted Diana and the ritual prostitution as a way of life. They called it worship, but it was dark and it was perverse and it had become normalized for them. What a cookie jar. I mean, this was simply their television. This was their smartphones that they had to deal with. And it was around them all the time. It was their religion. It was the worship of Diana. What a cultural shift. Paul says, let that stop. I know where you're living. I know what you have to, to deal with. I know the discernment that you need. Let that stop. Don't get into the cookie jar because it will paralyze you. It will raise up the old nature. And you will be swamped in doubt and fear. And there will be no more joy in your life. Paul is remembering, I'm sure, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about lust, that it was tantamount to committing adultery in the heart. And so what Paul is saying is that immorality, pornography, in whatever form it takes, does not imitate God. That was the big picture to which Paul was calling his friends in Christ to protect them, to protect them so that they could imitate Christ. Have you ever read uh, St. Thomas Aquinas' book called The Imitation of Christ? Have you ever read that book, some of you? Not a great book. It's, it's been years since I've read it. But when I was reading the first few verses of chapter 5 of Ephesians, I was reminded of this book that I enjoyed a long time ago. The bo this book is the most widely read devotional book of all time. I highly recommend it, re recommend it to you. Uh, it, it was written by a German monk for his fellow clergy, The Imitation of Christ. It has appeared in nearly 2,000 editions and translations, and it makes the Christian life attractive for every age throughout the years. It's a great read. It's a slow read. Uh, you can order it from Amazon. Paul was calling his friends in Christ to protect them so they could imitate Christ. Sometimes you hear in our, in our generation that it's necessary to experiment with sex before marriage in order to see whether or not marriage will really work. But again, it's a lie. It mistakes the physical union of sex as the primary thing in marriage. Physical union is not the most important thing about marriage by any means. Second, it's impossible to test marriage that way because the essential conditions that make up marriage are not there. As someone has well said, it is like trying to test a parachute by jumping off a 30-foot building. There just simply isn't enough room for the parachute to operate. The only way to test a parachute is to go up and jump out of an airplane. 
And the only way to test the proper function of sex is to be married. Giving the keys to the fantasy suite complicates things, not clarifies. You'll notice that the second word Paul uses is impurity. The word could be translated pollution. It describes the impact of immorality on our lives. We could say that the effects of not keeping between the ditches in our sexual lives is pollution. Well, what does that look like? Well, it means uh, guilt. It means shame. It means habitual sin, maybe addictions, and a life that spirals out of control. And that beautiful heart that Paul was wanting them to be able to sustain, that clean mind gets polluted and gets replaced by uneasiness and withdrawal and shame and guilt. Someone has said sexual sin will always take us further than we intended to play. It'll keep us longer than we intended to stay and will cost more than we're willing to pay. Paul doesn't want these new followers to get stuck in some areas that are going to stifle their growth. The enemy will have effectively sidelined them. Paul's third area of caution is the subject of greed. Could be translated covetousness. It has connotations for preoccupation with illicit sex, which comes in many forms. No, no doubt greed and addiction are related, especially in the area of pornography. The enemy has a way of creating a greed or an addiction for more and more until the mind and the heart are constantly consumed with the darkness of immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. So it could refer here to an insatiable appetite for sex, greed, and certainly it involves a hunger for more material possessions. Ephesians 5, verse 5, For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Greed is an insatiable desire for more than you need. The problem with greed is that you're never satisfied. One person writer calls this the, the myth of more. The myth of more. He writes, uh, we suffer from a phenomenon called reference anxiety. We just used to call it keeping up with the Joneses. We, we don't ask if our homes and our cars meet our needs. We just ask if they're nicer than our neighbors. We, we work like crazy to make it so, so that they're nicer than our neighbors. Well, what do you do uh, when the neighbors refinance? Just a thought. What do you do when they refinance? Greed, greed lies to us. It tells us that what matters most in life is how much we have. That's the essential lie of greed. Greed says that the quality of a person's life is measured in the size of their bank account and in the quantity and quality of their possessions. And you know that's not true. You can have more and more and more and it doesn't do anything to your heart. It doesn't do anything. It just, just a little bit and, and then it's right back to your heart is your heart is your heart. 
David Brooks of the New York Times points out how widespread this more phenomenon has become. At some point in the past decade, the suburbs went quietly berserk. As if under the influence of some bizarre form of radiation, everything got huge. The cars got huge. So heads don't even spin when a mountainous hummer comes rolling down the street. The houses got huge. The drinks at 7-Eleven got huge, as did the fry containers at McDonald's. The stores turned into these mega boxes. Suburbia is no longer the land of ticky-tock uh, tacky boxes on a hillside where everything looks the same. It's the land of the gargantuoids, says the writer. Read. Read. The next three areas in which Paul wants to protect his hearer is protect them from stepping on a landmine in the area of our language and our speech and our talking. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes Paul says to these believers, these are not for you. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. The English Standard Version says, not, nor filthiness, nor foolish talking or jesting, which are not befitting, but rather giving of thanks. Well, the first one, obscene stories or filthiness, refers to shameful, disgraceful talk, including degrading obscenities that rob people of their dignity, saying things that rob people of their dignity. Now some of you uh, are in work environments where you hear a lot. And uh, it must be hard. You hear it over and over and over again, day after day, week after week, month after month, perhaps year after year. And it's hard because you can't get away from it. And you hear those phrases and they come permeating into your mind and Wow, you need extra guards set up because they're just there. It's your environment. Now remember, Paul's not addressing everyone. He's writing to believers. And Paul knows that this is their world. This has been the world ever since creation. This is the environment in which they live. It's been true in every generation. And he reminds them to stay away from that talk. Even though they hear it all the time to keep themselves from that being a part of their lifestyle. Put some guards in place. Secondly, the phrase, not foolish talking, uh, is the word from which we get our word moron, which means fool. You could actually translate this, talking like a moron. It's silly talk. It's unnecessary talk. Uh, it's not referring to being mentally deficient. Sometimes I always act like a moron, meaning mentally deficient. It's, it's not that. But it means pointless, empty, and foolish talk, unnecessary verbiage that is completely not needed, not needed. Thirdly, then there's the phrase coarse jokes. It typically means when someone cracks a joke with a double meaning. You're around that often, I'm sure. It sounds very witty, gets everybody laughing, because it's said with a double meaning. Most of the humor is below the waist humor. It's, it's degrading. Sounds cute. Some talk show hosts use this form of humor. Sounds so brilliant, but and then it has that little turn to it. 
but it's dirty and sleazy, and it puts people in a very awkward position. Am I supposed to laugh at that? Have you ever been made to laugh at something you didn't really want to laugh at at all? It's like, oh, you told that, and now I've got to, what do I do with that? Paul takes all of this stuff and he says, wow, that, that's your generation. Don't fall into the trap. It will rob you of so much in your relationship with God. It'll take the joy from your heart. Instead, replace it with thanksgiving. I'd cultivate a thankful heart. Let there be thankfulness to God. Use your words for gratefulness to God. Have a thankful heart. And that will be just a refreshing breeze in your life. And it'll blow out all the cobwebs, all the sleazy stuff, all the sooty stuff that circulates in an environment. Just have a grateful heart. Just be giving thanks. And just let that other stuff just be unguarded. Let it go. Don't follow that. Then thirdly, Paul talks about living as people of light. Oh, what a rich, rich passage. Listen to these words. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Uh, Paul says there was a time when his Ephesian friends were full of darkness. I mean, not just a little darkness, but full of darkness. Not even a pilot light going. Full of darkness. But he says, when we came to Christ, light began to filter into our hearts. And he made us a new creation. And the Holy Spirit entered our lives. Oh, and from that moment on, everything changed. You have the Spirit of God in your life. Therefore, you have light. Live as people of light. The Holy Spirit is working in your life. You can see what he's doing. He makes you very sensitive to the darkness. He brings you to a place where, where you say, Lord, oh, not, not that, but Lord, take all of me, all of, all of you in my life, not my desires, but you, oh Lord. Lord, just put a shelter, put a protection around me. Thank you for the Holy Spirit giving me light in my life. Oh, and look at verse 10. We could camp on this verse for a long time. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. New Living Translation. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. What if we thought of that moment by moment? Lord, does this please you? Does my life please you? And it became our goal to evaluate each area of our life. Lord, does it please you? Verse 14, for the light makes everything visible. Light has a way of showing up all the defects, all the dust that has accumulated, all of that. When the light comes in, it just reveals it all. There was a man returning from a journey, and he uh, brought home to his wife a matchbox that apparently would glow in the dark. So after giving it to her, she turned out the light, but the matchbox could not be seen. Well, both thought, ah, we've been cheated on this. Then the wife noticed some French words on the box, and she asked a friend to translate them. And the inscription said, if you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. If you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. 
When you spend precious time alone with the Lord, just you and him, not distracted by all the world's cares, just, just getting to know him, just listening to his heart, perhaps journaling, however you can best connect with him, you'll see that your life is a light in the world in which you live. So Paul's challenge is this. Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Amen.